WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily, and I'm here with Jillian Pastor from Eve Incorporation to talk about Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Now, to start us off, try to um, explain a little bit about your involvement in Domestic Violence Awareness Month through Eve. Um, well, I'm the community relations coordinator at Eve, and so um, a lot of what I do is um, providing education and awareness to the community about domestic violence. And October creates a, a perfect oppor- opportunity to do that. Um, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It's a national. Um, Awareness Month, so there are all sorts of events and activities going out um, uh, throughout the month uh, to kind of highlight survivors of domestic violence and um, rally support um, around them. So um, a lot of what I do is is the education piece, and um, you know, like I said, October is a really great month to do that. Now, how would you define domestic violence? Is it specifically physical abuse, verbal abuse? What constitutes um, domestic violence? It's a pattern of behaviors um, in which one person uses control and power um, in the relationship. Um, it is not just physical abuse, although that's the one that we tend to think of often because it's very easy to see um, bruises and cuts and things like that. Um, but emotional abuse is a huge part of it. Um, a lot of survivors say that um, you know the bruises and, and the scars they go away, um, but you you know, the emotional abuse is, is still always there, and it's the hardest to get over. Um, there's also economic abuse, using um, money to control um, the victim. Um, there is psychological abuse. There's all, all kinds of um, tactics that are used, um, like intimidation and threats, which might not necessarily be physical, um, but there's there's still um, very widely used tactics, and um, they really can be really devastating for survivors. Now, what are some facts or bits of information that most people do not know about domestic violence? Um, ooh, that's a that's a tough one because I think that um, a lot of people don't really know domestic violence in general. Um, you know, October is also Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and you can't open a, a newspaper without seeing a pink ribbon. Um, but that purple ribbon which we use um, to, to signify Domestic Violence Awareness Month, it, it's really not out there as um, prevalent. So I think a lot of times people don't know um, what domestic violence is until maybe they're in a relationship um, that is abusive. And I think even some of the survivors that come to us, they, they wouldn't call it domestic violence. Um, you know, they would say, you know, this is a bad relationship. Things are things are just kind of going downhill. Or, you know, I, I seem to always get involved with um, these type of men. And I say men because 95% of victims of domestic violence are women. Um, however, you know, as it becomes more acceptable for men to come out and say that they've been in an abusive relationship, we're going to see those numbers change. Um, so, you know, like I said, I think, you know, just having experience with it, um, with family and friends and neighbors, and, um, you know, that really makes people aware of it. And then they kind of seek out um, more information. Um, but I think, you know, we don't really have a whole lot of examples of healthy relationships out there. So, how do people kind of recognize what's abusive? 
Now, you mentioned that, you know, during this month, the pink ribbon is more um, seen than the purple ribbon. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think that is, and what do you think um, people can do to make, uh, I guess, the purple ribbon more prevalent? You know, it's really hard to say. Um, breast cancer affects one in eight women. Um, domestic violence affects one in four. Um, and I, I think maybe because it's a little bit more... Um, noticeable in the media as far as, you know, um, women are told to get their breast cancer exams and things like that. Um, and it's domestic violence is still kind of seen as a family issue, and it's not really seen as a community issue, which it really is. Um, you know, the messages that we put out there and um, the way that we behave socially um, definitely, you know, uh, um, has a, a huge impact on on what domestic violence is, and um, you know I, it's it's really hard to say. I think marketing has a lot to do with it. Um, a lot of domestic violence agencies are nonprofit organizations, um, and they're usually smaller, uh, locally based nonprofit organizations. There are some national um, organizations that do do some promotion um, and do some awareness, but really their goal is to connect shelters rather than, um, you know, really promoting uh, domestic violence. So it, it's, it's difficult to say. I think there are a lot of different factors that play into it. And what would you say some factors are that contribute to why domestic violence occurs? Um, I think, you know, it's, it's deeply rooted in oppression. Um, I think that um, in general, we don't really know how to interact with each other. Um, I was talking to one of my colleagues uh, recently uh, who works within the court system because Eve has a, a personal protection order office um, in Lansing. And, um, you know, we see a lot of people coming into court to kind of hash out their problems rather than sitting down, being able to communicate things out. Um, and we, we really struggle with that for some reason. Um, and so I think... You know, just those those types of things, and then not really knowing how to create an equal relationship, what kinds of things should be involved in that. Um, I think there's a huge area between what is a healthy relationship and what is abusive, and that area is very gray, um, and we call it unhealthy. And I think a lot of people, you know, are, are some fall somewhere in that unhealthy. I know even in my own relationship, um, I have to constantly uh, work to keep that equal. And so, you know, it's, it's something that we always have to work at, and sometimes we fall into old patterns, and that's what domestic violence is. It's a pattern of um, controlling behaviors. So you said how... Um domestic violence uh, comes about and how it can possibly be prevented. What other things do you do through EVE to educate people about domestic violence? What kind of programs do you have? Um, Sure. Uh, Well, just for our community relations um, program, uh, we do a lot of resource fairs. um, do a lot of things at MSU, um, career fairs. Um, because we have a huge volunteer program, our, our organization is mainly run on volunteers. It was started by volunteers, and it continues through the work of volunteers. And so, um, you know, we recruit a lot of uh, individuals from MSU. Um, we do awareness events. Um, you know, during October, we had a uh, prosecuting attorney meeting um, because the Ingham County prosecuting attorney is up for election this year. And... Um, there is a candidate running against uh, Stuart Dunnings. And uh, so we wanted to 
have a, a forum where the public could come and kind of learn about um, domestic and sexual violence and how those cases are prosecuted in Ingham County. Um, that was earlier this month. Um, we also have a candlelight vigil at the end of the month um, where we are really just honoring survivors, um, opening a space for survivors to um, tell their stories of healing and empowerment. Uh, that'll be at Magdalena's Tea House on October 28th. Um, we, we do that every year. Um, and we also recognize um, the survivors who have passed over the past year um, because of, of murders and, and other things. So we have the homicide list of the past year, and we remember those survivors also because a lot of times um, they won't get mentioned as domestic violence cases. They'll be um, kind of spun a different way or, um, you know, talked about a little bit differently. We heard a lot about murder-suicides. Um, that is the ultimate domestic violence, you know, um, that, that's, that's killing somebody and then killing yourself. And so, um, you know, a lot of times we don't label that domestic violence. Um, so we do a lot of um, awareness and education uh, type things. We also have a dating violence prevention education program. So we go and talk to middle school and high school students about dating violence to prevent um, this so that they can recognize what it is and um, start to form healthy relationships. Oh, very good. Yeah, I, I noticed that you also, um, the candlelight vigil that you're talking about, it's on October 28th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., and you mentioned that you read off a list of people who have died through domestic violence. How many people a year in, is it through the Lansing area or just mm. throughout, like, the U.S.? How many people is that, and where are they located? Um, the list that we have is Ingham County, and um, I haven't gotten that list yet this year, um, but it's typically around 42. Oh, wow. um, I think that was what it was last year. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really disturbing to read the list sometimes. Um, we're not going to actually read it this time. We're just going to kind of give people the space to reflect on some of the, the cases because in the past, you know, we have read it and it has been really hard to, um, take. And we really want this event to be, um, something where we're honoring survivors, we're empowering survivors and not just reflecting on, um, you know, the bad. And you also have some other events coming up. On October 15th, you have the Allen Neighborhood Center Spotlight. And on October 20th, you have Walk a Mile in These Shoes. Can you talk a little bit about those events? Sure. Um, Allen Neighborhood Center, uh, the Farmer's Market, is a great market. Um, I live right over on the east side, so I love going over there. Um, and we're going to be a spotlight program um, on Wednesday. And we'll just have our, our information out. Um, we are also going to have a, a small version of the Walk a Mile in These Shoes display. And basically what that is is um, we gather the numbers of survivors, women and children, who stayed in our uh, shelter over the past year. And we take a pair of shoes, and those represent each survivor that has been in our shelter. And so at the Allen Neighborhood Center, we'll have all the children's shoes. Um, the numbers for that was 100, there were 168, I believe, last year. I'll have to check my numbers again. But um, there were 368 total women and children who stayed in our shelter. And the event on the 20th um, will be a larger display of what we'll have at the Allen Neighborhood Center.
And where can people go um, to find more information about these events? Um, evink.org is a great um, website to go to. You can find information about all of our programs, all of our services. We offer quite a few um, different services, including emergency shelter um, for women and children. And I say women and children because um, the physical space of our shelter doesn't allow um, men. We have some community spaces that we have to keep safe. Um, but we work really closely with MSU Safe Place, which is the campus domestic violence shelter. And they do take men. Um, so uh, the first point of contact for a survivor is definitely our crisis hotline, and that number is 372-5572. It's a local number, um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, you can call that number, and you can call just to talk. You can call to find out if there's shelter available, and you can call to um, find out what our non-residential advocacy programs are because you don't have to stay in the shelter um, to receive our services. So people usually, do they find out about the shelter through the crisis hotline? How, I mean, how does the shelter um, work, and how do people find out about it? Um, they find out about it by, you know, <clears throat> doing things like this, um, you know, just talking to the community about domestic violence. Um, they also find out about it uh, through contact with police officers. Um, we train all the police officers in the police academy, so they're very, very... Um, knowledgeable about domestic violence and they're able to do some screening for us. Um, also, if they go to a hospital and they have contact with a nurse there, um, they can get our uh, services through there. They can, you know, get our crisis cards and, and get our number. Um, they also can get our information from CARE, which is the Capital Area Response Effort, and they go out to the scene of an arrest and um, basically tell the survivor, you know, he's, he's probably going to be um, out in the morning, so what are your safety plans, you know, things like that. And then if they want to come into shelter, then they can contact us. Okay. And I also, um, when people go to the shelter, is it just kind of a safe place for them, or do you provide counseling and other services for them as well? Yes. Um, each person who comes to the shelter is assigned an advocate, and the advocate kind of um, talks with them to find out what their needs are, whether it be employment or child care or transportation. Um, and then they also receive counseling services. All of our counselors are MSWs or going towards their MSW um, or a related uh, field. Um, and so they get individual counseling. There's also group counseling um, every Tuesdays and Thursdays, I believe. Um, and that's a really great service. Um, there have been women who just keep coming because they really um, they benefit a lot from the support. Okay. And I also noticed that you have child care available as well as support groups and education groups. Yes, absolutely. Um, children often come in with their mother um, to the shelter, and depending on you know what children we have and, and what kind of their needs are, um, we have different education groups that we do with them um, just to talk about domestic violence, um, to kind of break that cycle, um, because they say that um, I think children who grow up in violent homes are seven times more likely to become victims or abusers themselves. Oh, wow. um, and so we really want to work with them to kind of talk about this issue um, and talk about things that they can do to change, um, you know, and to break that cycle. Now, you also talked about the Personal Protection Order Office. Mm -hmm. What types of stuff do you guys do there? Um, we deal with domestic and stalking cases, and a personal protection order is like a restraining order. Um, and before that office existed, 
it was basically just a form on the wall um, that you would pick up and fill out. And for a person in crisis, um, that can be really, really difficult to do, especially because you have to add a statement of abuse, uh, things like that. So now we have an office um, with legal advocates that... Um, can help each survivor with kind of going through that process, deciding whether or not a personal protection order is the right um, thing for them, because sometimes that can put them in more danger. Um, so we really kind of talk with the survivor, find out, you know, what they're comfortable, um, you know, what their level of comfort is um, with this. And to really decide, because a lot of people come in and they just say, you know, I want a restraining order, but they may not know what that means, um, because you do have to serve that restraining order. Um, you can pay a service to do that, but it's quite expensive. Um, so you have to find ways to do that, and that could put the survivor in, in more danger. So, Now, stalking is an interesting issue, especially regarding do domestic violence, because a lot of people, it can either be very subtle and people don't really realize they're being stalked. And um, I read that 13% of college women have been stalked during their school year. Of those students, 42% were stalked by a current or former partner. Mm -hmm. That that statistic is kind of alarming. Um, do you get a lot of college students that come in um, with those types of issues? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's all sorts of stalking issues out there, um, unfortunately. And, yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that number. Um, I think we see it a lot at our office. Um, it, we see the, the stranger stalking, we see the acquaintance stalking, and a lot of times, you know, women don't really know what to do with that, and um, really all you need is their name, which sometimes that can be really hard mm -hmm. um, to find out, but then we can run it through our system and we can see if that person has ha has a history of stalking, um, and then we can kind of go from there with legal action. Um, so I think we definitely see that. I think um, sexual assault is something else that we see a lot of, especially from um, college campuses, and there are some really great work being done right now to create a um, more centralized sexual assault center um, that would kind of serve both Lansing and East Lansing. So I think um, once that kind of um, comes to a head, that's going to be a really great um, program also. Now, people, uh, MSU students usually get emails when there's been a sexual assault case on campus, especially at night when, when women or students are walking around on campus by themselves. Um, we had quite a few cases last year, and we've had, um, I'd say, one or two this year. Um, and I feel like that's a high, that's a large amount of people to, um, you know, just be walking around at night and um, have someone come up to a stranger and assault them. Um, is that, are those high numbers for a university or, I mean, where do we rank as far as other universities? You know, that's hard, that's really hard to tell. I'm, I'm not sure because um, I haven't really studied too much up on that. Um, but I would say, I think that we're seeing it a little bit more because it's, um, more of a of a highlighted issue, and um, more women are willing to come forward with that information. Um, more more women are getting away um, and able to call the police right away. Um, and I, I believe that I heard um, a case recently where maybe somebody got. Um, hit with some keys or something across the face and then tried to um, sexually assault somebody else later and they, you know, saw the scar and they were mm -hmm. able to get this person. I'm not quite sure if that was here or, you know, around the area. Um, but I think that, you know, it's just, it's becoming more of, uh, more people are becoming aware of the issue and are stepping forward and saying that this happened 
um, to me. And I think that's true also of the acquaintance rapes. Um, you know, there's been a lot of great literature that's come out um, over the past decade about, you know, what is rape? What What is this gray area of rape? I never called it rape is a really good um, book. Um, so I think that, you know, women are becoming a little bit more aware of um, what's happening and knowing that they can actually press charges for that. Right. And there was a study that came out in 1996 um, by the U.S. Department of Justice National Institute of Justice Study on the Sexual Victimization of College Women. Mm -hmm. It's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. um, but they said that less than 5% of sexual assaults or attempted sexual assaults on college campuses are reported to the police. 5% is a tiny number. Do you think that that has grown in the past few years through education? Or do you think that still remains the same? I really hope it has grown. I really, really do. I hope that more women are, you know, coming forward with, um, you know, these sexual assaults as well as uh, the dating violence or domestic violence that's happening in the relationships. Um, you know, that, that number sounds still very, very low. Um, and I would hope that as we become more educated about this issue, that um, more women and men um, will step forward. I think that there is a large community of men who are abused and maybe don't know that they're being abused. Maybe it's not that physical abuse. Maybe it's more of that emotional abuse. We know kind of how um, women act out as as a as um you know, in contrast with men, and sometimes that looks a little bit different. Um, sometimes it's more of that emotional abuse putting putting them down. Um, and it's, it's really not a masculine thing to come out and say that. And so I think as it becomes a little bit more, um, you know, as, as more people are able to talk about it, we'll hear more. All right. Well, thank you, Jillian, again for coming in. Um, for those who just tuned in, I'm talking to Jillian Pestor from EVE to talk about Domestic Violence and Awareness Month. Um, and for more information, um, Eve's uh, hotline, crisis hotline, is 372-5572, or you can go online, um, and their website is eveinc.org. Um, and you said you also mentioned CARE as well as a contact. Mm -hmm. um, is there any other information that people can go to for more? MSU Safe Place is a really great resource. Also, it's the only campus domestic violence program in the country. So um, we're really lucky to have that here on campus. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming in. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sitter Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure.
You are tuned to Impact Exposure. Um, I am your host, Emily, and I'm here with Freddy Rodriguez, who's a graduate student project coordinator for a special Smithsonian exhibit, Our Journeys, Our Stories. And he's here to talk about the Cafe Con Leche event, October 16th, um, at the MSC Museum. Thank you. So, Freddy, talk a little bit about um, this exhibit and the event coming up. Um, so the exhibit, this is in a Smithsonian um, sponsor exhibit. Um, the MSU Museum is uh, the first uh, museum in Michigan to have become, um, to have achieved uh, affiliate status to the Smithsonian, which means that we are, um, this allows us to do uh, projects such as this. Um, the, um, our journeys, our stories is a, uh, an exhibit that was, uh, has been traveling for five years and it concludes at the MSU Museum. Uh, this exhibit um, <clears throat> was organized by the Smithsonian Center for Latino Initiatives um, in conjunction with the uh, Smithsonian uh, Center um, for uh, Travel and Exhibitions. And it, uh, it comprises 24 individual portraits that um, demos, uh, show the, uh, the achievements and the uh, contributions that um, Latinos have had in American society. Um, it is 24 individuals and an extended family. Um, now, our job with the Café con Leche um, programs is to um, develop these different events. Um, some of them, the ones that happen on Thursday nights uh, from 9 to 11 p.m., um, are geared towards students that, you know, they want to take a study break they can come and um, enjoy things such as uh, traditional music. This uh, coming Thursday, for instance, we're having a small Mexican band from the Lansing area, and uh, we're going to have refreshments, and we're going to have tour guides for the exhibit. Um, we have other programs such as um, the, the first Sunday programs, which are geared for um, reaching uh, what we call non-traditional museum goers. Uh, in the larger uh, Lansing area, especially um, members of the Latino community who um, haven't been to the museum before or who haven't seen this type of exhibits. Um, the next event that we have is on uh, November 2nd, and it's going to be a great event. We have uh, an artist um, from Detroit who is uh, going to, um, I think, depict some of the works that Diego Rivera did while he uh, was in Detroit, and um, so he's going to do an opening ceremony for uh, Day of the Dead, and also we're going to have um, a program that was, I believe, developed by the Department of Communications here at Michigan State University. Um, this uh, second program is a um, photojournalism youth uh, project that I think uh, portrays the works of uh, high school students that have done um, experimental work with uh, photojournalism. Um, most of the, uh, um, in December we'll have, um, in November, excuse me, we'll have uh, another event that um, actually features um, Michigan State University poets uh, doing poetry readings, including myself. I'll be doing some of the poetry reading. And uh, we'll also have traditional uh, Latin American music and refreshments. Um, and we're still in the planning of the last event, which will take place in December.
Oh, wow. So that's quite a list of events. Where can people go to get just a list of all the mm-hmm. different events that are going on? People can actually um, have the list of all the events at the uh, MSU Museum uh, website, which is uh, museum.msu.edu. And uh, um, they can find information there about parking, about hours, and about um, other events going on. Now, you mentioned that this is um, this traveling exhibit is done through the Smithsonian Institution. Mm-hmm. Um, how does, um, um, I guess, uh, an event or um, something at the museum that's done through the Smithsonian Institution differ from just a normal um, mm-hmm. event? Well, um, one of the things is that, you know, as you know, the, the, uh, the Smithsonian Institution is uh, the world's largest uh, museum complex, right? right? And... Um, being um, the first um, museum and institution in the state of Michigan to have been affiliated to the Smithsonian allows us to um, really take advantage of a lot of resources. They have many resources, and uh, uh, for instance, uh, the fact that this um, exhibit has been on tour for five years and that uh, the Michigan State University Museum was chosen as its concluding uh, place is a great thing. Um, also, they um, they have been collaborating with uh, things such as the uh, Michigan Folk Festival, which takes place annually in, in August. So things of that nature are, are really important. So does, this, does the Smithsonian Institution choose where they travel to? Yes. They choose where they travel to, and I guess um, um, different institutions petition or request. And... Uh, and I'm assuming that having an affiliate status weighs into their decisions on where to place different exhibits. Right. Um, and what what types of places has this exhibit traveled to already? Um, I am not sure, but I'm um, one of the I, Austin, Texas. I think was a big one of the the, the uh, bigger um, places, and. Um, and I'm assuming it, it, it first up and up in Washington D.C., but um, um, the um, the museum website has actually a full range of of information on the exhibit, and it can people can find the uh, more information about it there. Okay, um, and have we had a Smithsonian exhibit at the MSU Museum before? Um, I think. The uh, Smithsonian has one of the major contributions has been the uh, the folk festival. I think that's that's one of the uh, the main um, joint events that's happened in the past. Um, we we have actually just recently become an affiliate, so it's since since two thousand and one. Um, so I think as uh, as time goes by, I'm sure that you know more you know projects in conjunction will happen with them. So what does the Smithsonian Institution do at the Folk Festival? At the Folk Festival, um, I believe they're just a, uh, an ex- sponsoring. And I'm, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but what i assuming they do is um, if, uh, for instance, the museum wanted to use some of the resources, um, archives, for instance, they can rely on, on, the, uh, on some of the resources that the Smithsonian has. Okay. Now, how many different exhibits happen every year in the MSU Museum? Um, we have 
at least, I think, two traveling exhibits going every year, and uh, some of them um, stay as long as eight months. Um, so, um, again, the museum, I th- the museum website has um, a full range, range, I think, of, of past, um, uh, present, and future um, changing and permanent exhibits. Now, are there other exhibits that are going on right now besides um, the one that you were talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one um, great exhibit that is, uh, think about cartoons, that um, it's really great. I think it's, uh, it, um, um, it portraits um, how people interact with, how people um, portray political situations through cartoons. That's a a really beautiful exhibit. Um, And then there's one across the whole um, from us that um, I think I have some information of it. But um, um, there's one called Threads of uh, of Change, which um, talk about um, the transformation of West African textiles. Um, We have um, We have uh, a really great exhibit um, called What's So Funny About Science, which is also a, uh, a, uh, um, I think it's actually a a changing exhibit as well. Um, We have things such as um, Dino Dash, which happened last week, which is a 5K run that they do, and with children, which is a great event. And that... um, we also have other types of um, of events, such as wine testing uh, benefits and so on. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's it. Thank you very much. Um, for those who just tuned in, I'm talking with Freddy Rodriguez um, with the MSC Museum. He was here to talk about the event on Thursday. It is Café Con Leche at the MSC Museum, and it is from 9 to 11 p.m., um, for those who are not familiar with where the MSU Museum is located, it is located on Westerville Drive next to Beaumont Tower. For more information, you can go to museum.msu.edu. And thank you very much again, Freddie, for coming in. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. Thank you. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432 3893. And now, back to Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily. Here I am with Monica Finnis, who is the head of the Frib Student Advisory Committee, and Andy Rogers, who is a grad student at MSU um, with the National Superconducting 
Cyclotron Laboratory at NSU. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Um, and they're here to talk about FRIB, or the Facility for Rare Isotope Beams, that is trying to come to MSU um, shortly. So can you guys briefly explain what FRIB is? Well, like you said, it stands for the Facility for Rare Isotope Beams, and it's this huge nuclear science research project um, that MSU is competing for. Uh, the Department of Energy is going to fund this facility, and um, it's basically going to be an upgrade an upgrade to the lab that we have, um, except for it's going to be um, hundreds of times more powerful, and it's going to be one of the world's most advanced um, facility of this kind. Now talk about um, what you have right now. Is You just have um, the, cy- the cyclotron laboratory right now. Um, talk a little bit about that so we kind of have a base to work on for this next project that's coming. Yeah, I think I can answer that. Uh, so the lab that we have right now uh, consists of uh, two what we call cyclotrons. It's just a type of accelerator. And uh, what we accelerate or what we, what we speed up are uh, atomic nuclei. And we take those nuclei that we accelerate and we collide them uh, into a target and we produce a variety of isotopes. Um, and uh, just maybe to, to mention, so uh, most people are familiar with, with the elements. Uh, people, I think, understand what hydrogen is, what carbon is, what oxygen is. Uh, but there's a wide variety of what are called isotopes. So uh, in the atomic nucleus, in the, in the center, in the core, uh, you have basically two particles that make up any atom. Uh, and that, those are protons and, and neutrons. Now, if you, uh, if you want to define an element, or, or various elements are defined by the number of protons in this nucleus. So one proton is hydrogen, two is lithium, six is carbon. Um, but then you also have these neutrons that are in the, in the core. Uh, and if, if you have carbon, for instance, you, natural carbon, uh, stable carbon is carbon-12. So it's six protons and six neutrons. But you can add and remove neutrons as, as you wish, almost. Uh, so you can have carbon-14, for instance, which has an extra two neutrons than stable carbon. And, uh, you know, people know about that, I think, from uh, uh, radioactive dating. Well, those, those different isotopes of, uh, of, of these elements uh, are able to be able to produce those in the lab and uh, take them and uh, study their structure, study their properties, and learn about nature really on, the, on the, that small uh, scale. So with this... Um this new technology, um, FRIB, what, how is that going to advance what we have already? Okay, well, the, the problem right now is we're really uh, pushing the limits of our current facility. So it's, uh, we're, we're trying to study what are known as rare isotopes. So uh, the farther from stability or the further from stability that we go, the uh, more difficult it is to produce these very short-lived uh, isotopes. And so if you, if you again, take the ca- uh, case of carbon, uh, you can imagine, well, I can keep plopping neutrons into this nucleus, and what's to stop me from, uh, from you know, continuing to do that? And uh, really, physics, you know, nature is what is going to stop you from doing that. And right now, we can, we can keep putting a neutron on, keep putting a neutron on, and we eventually get to the limits of, of what exists. Um, but right now, we're, we're not really able to approach those limits. We know that there are, there are much, many more isotopes that do exist, and we need a new facility to be able to explore this, this, this region, uh, explore all these new isotopes that, that, that are able to, uh, to exist in nature. Now, what can you do with these rare isotopes? 
Well, for the most part, it's just uh, basic science. I mean, people at the lab here are concerned primarily with understanding uh, nature and physics at uh, the most fundamental, at some of these most fundamental levels on these very, very small uh, scales. Um, but when you understand the pieces that make up any type of system, uh, you understand something, uh, uh, you have a deeper understanding of the system uh, itself. Uh, so once you understand the, the building blocks, uh, just like DNA or any other kind of science, uh, once you understand the building blocks of DNA, you have more control over, over what you do in biology, for instance. The same is true in uh, nuclear physics. So the more we understand about various isotopes, the more we learn about the stars, the more we learn about uh, how the universe has evolved uh, over time. Um, and also, there are a lot of, uh, quite a few applications that can come out of, uh, of nuclear science. So I read somewhere that um, Frib can actually, through this process of um, that you just talked about, can actually. Um, it said that um, it may unlock the secrets of the universe or even cure cancer. <laughs> Is that possible? Well, um, studying the rare isotopes has, has the practical applications of, like with NSCL, for instance, built a, a, a cyclotron for Harbor Hospital in Detroit, and. Um, it, it was used, proton um, treatment was used from these isotopes to help target the cancer and, and uh, let me say, eliminate it. <laughs> and also, um, it has applications in medical diagnostics like CAT scans and x-rays, and also in security for um, x-ray reasons as well. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. So uh, one of the high points of our lab is that we, we produce quite a few uh, students, I mean, the students that come out of the lab are, are very well qualified for a variety of fields. And uh, we've actually had a symposium just, just recently where uh, former students have come, by, come back, alumni, and said what, they, what they're doing now. And quite a few do many different things outside of nuclear physics. So, there, uh, for instance, there was one guy who uh, I think he was working with the Mayo Clinic, and he, uh, he uh, helps to build and, and, and figure out how to uh, make a new cyclotrons that are used for uh, ion therapy. So you have uh, uh, proton therapy or even heavier, uh, heavier element uh, therapies that are used to kill cancers. And these are uh, somewhat complicated devices, but they're, they're very useful for certain types of cancers and, and really are an amazing tool uh, for doctors. Um, and then, so we also, uh, Monica also mentioned uh, national security issues. So uh, there was a, one of the other alumni that had come back uh, works at MIT, and he actually develops uh, compact superconducting uh, cyclotrons that are a bit, uh, quite a bit smaller than what we have here, and a, a bit different in what they use them for. Uh, that can be used to scan cargo containers, or uh, you know, all, all sorts of different applications related to, to national security. And you, you were talking about the qualification of students that come through MSU. Um, and it was said that MSU's uh, National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory has been a world leader in rare isotope research for 50 years and has a number two ranking in nuclear physics uh, graduate degree program in the U.S. And that's uh, second, and the first is MIT. So with bringing Frib here, is that going to put us at number one? Uh, I would say so. I mean, it's really going to be a... Uh, completely, uh, really amazing facility, and uh, unlike anything that is available at any other campus or institution, uh, academic institution in in the country. 
it's it's not only unique for nuclear science, but I think nu unique in, in in all the sciences and and, and all types of fields. Uh, we're talking about a, a real major uh, 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 laboratory uh, that will take a few years to even build. Uh, yeah, this uh, the facility is is uh, going to put the U.S. Um, it will make the U.S. competitive in with the other facilities that are around the world being built. So this will definitely be the most advanced in the United States, if not the world's, at the time of it being built. Now, who else is competing for this? Well, um, Argonne National Laboratory in Illinois is, is also competing for this. Now, when um, is the decision made about um, who actually gets... Um, the facility for rare isotope beams. The DOE has said that they will make a decision by the end of the year, so that's what we're hoping for. Now, who is it? So it's the Department of Energy that, that decides? Yes. Okay. So with the presidential elections coming around, that has nothing to do with it? Um, well, we haven't seen the either candidates um, mention the issue as of yet. But the, the committee that really decides is a, is a has already been formed uh, prior to the elections, so uh, the people that are going to decide on this committee are really made up from people from Congress and scientists and advisors and, and lawyers and things like this. So uh, I think that that's, the decision is pretty much set in their hands. And now um, the Department of Energy is actually coming here on October 20th. So what are they going to do when they get here? They're going to take a tour of the campus and the community and come to NSCL for a site review. Yeah, they basically want to see what we're about, see what uh, what, what advantages we have here, uh, get a feel for what they uh, are going to be investing in. It's going to be a, you know, uh, a big investment, and so they they want to make sure that uh, they put their money somewhere that they they think it'll 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 be well spent. Right. Um, now, talk about. I mean, just what for those people who maybe aren't um, in tune with science, like myself. Um, how like what would what does um, FRIB look like? How big is it? Um, how does it, I mean, you kind of explained how it works, but um, just like the physical aspect of it. Okay, well, FRIB is going to be uh, a little bit different from what we have on campus here. So here we have, uh, like I had said, uh, two cyclotrons, which are basically uh, the, the particles that we accelerate are, uh, are sped up, but they're confined into a circular motion. Uh, so the cyclotrons are, I think the smallest one is roughly 10 feet in diameter, and the larger cyclotron, uh, which fully accelerates our ions, uh, is around 14 feet. The difference with FRIB is that it's not composed of cyclotrons, it's a linear accelerator. So uh, we accelerate these ions in one big line, basically. Um, and I think currently the dimensions, uh, the, the, the length of the accelerator itself is somewhere around a quarter of a mile, maybe a little bit shorter. I think it, it depends a little bit on, on the funding. Um, but uh, it's it's going to be on South Campus is is the plan because it, there's no place to put it right now or expand upon the the lab that we have here. We really need a, a fresh new site, uh, and so that means a lot of construction. It means a lot of jobs uh, for people. It means a lot of money brought in. Um, and, but it's going to in some way be similar to uh, the lab here in that we'll have a, a region where we have the actual beam line, the accelerator itself. And then off of that, we'll, there will be different uh, rooms. Uh, we call them vaults in the lab here, where there'll be different detectors set up to actually perform the experiments, different devices to do the measuring uh, that we require to, to understand the nucleus. Now, you talked about the jobs that this could possibly bring. 
Um, I read that this would, po- if if we got this, it would possibly create over 800 new jobs in Michigan. Um, do you think that has a lot, um, like when when you've you've been talking to uh, congressmen or anything like that, um, do you think that that's a really big push to help Michigan's economy by bringing this in? No, oh, I, th- I think it's a huge a huge push because it's it's a you know, it's it's a composite of a of a whole bunch of different uh, different different things. I mean, it brings jobs, it brings people from all over the place. It enhances the university, and I think maybe that's something that's important. Is whenever you enhance the the university, you you're bringing people and and from all around, and you're bringing them to Michigan, and you're making you're giving them a reason to to stay here, um, and uh, and so yeah. So not not only bringing people to the university and creating this this. Uh, community of of real science leadership and the people that make that up, bringing jobs, uh, creating jobs, and uh, bringing the revenue that comes from bringing all those people into the city, uh, into the state. Very good. Now, Monica, I think I have a question for you regarding getting people, um, I guess, more knowledgeable about um, FRIB and what it does and what it can mean for bringing it to MSU. Um, I know at the Obama rally, there's a huge poster that was put up on IM Circle right across the street from... um, Adams Field, where the rally was going on, where it said, bring Frib to our crib. Um, and I see that there's events coming up um, called the Frib Frenzy to try to get people knowledgeable about what this is. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, Frib Frenzy is on Thursday. We're basically setting up shop at the Rock on campus on Farm Lane. And um, all day from 9 to 6 p.m., we're going to have these smashing nuclei demonstrations, um, which is a really great way to understand the science in an easy way, and students will have the opportunity to make their rare isotope. And Sparty will be there from 2 to 3 p.m. taking pictures with everyone in these Bring Frib to Our Crib t-shirts. And the idea is we have a thousand t-shirts, and um, we're actually having pickups all this week for people to pick up the T-shirt, and I brought one for you. Yes, I'm looking at it right now. It's um, <laughs> um, in the middle is the state of Michigan with a little S on it, um, and it says the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory at MSU. It's very nice. So thank you. It was a team effort to design that, and we're pretty happy with it. So yeah, um, the idea is that a thousand students are going to be wearing these T-shirts and people will start talking about it and people will start asking questions and and they'll find out more and they can stop by The Rock all day and, and find out more as well. Now, is that going to be from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m.? How is that how long it's going on for? Yes, we'll have people there um, all day during that time. There'll be Cornhole, there'll be Fribsy. Um, we'll be giving out the T-shirts, these wristbands that say "Ring Frib to Our Crib" and they're glow in the dark, and um, and doing the demonstrations all day from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Now, how how are people doing the smashing nuclei demonstrations? How does that work? Well, it's this mini model that simulates um, basically what the cyclotron and what Frib will do, and there's these um, magnet marbles that represent the atoms and you drop them into this model and they smash into another set of hanging um, magnets and then the magnets reconform into something totally different and then you can look and um, see what you've made based on the different color color marbles one represents protons the other is neutrons and we can uh, 
take it to the chart and see what you've made. And that exactly explains the science, I think, in a real basic level. Now, this whole process kind of reminds me of um, the Brian Park project that happened in Switzerland, um, where they made this particle accelerator that is supposed to kind of simulate these tiny black holes, and everyone was worried that it was going to be the end of the world, that something would go wrong, and we'd actually get a black hole on Earth, and then everyone would die off. Um, <laughs> this is what it kind of reminds me of. Um, are there other things like, you know, FRIB and the particle accelerator that are going on all over the world? I think uh, I think what everyone's uh, heard about lately in the news is, is the LHC uh, CERN, so the Large Hadron Collider, and, and, and people that were uh, the latest ruckus was about uh, people concerned about black holes being created, and even before that, uh, at Brookhaven National Lab, there was a there's an accelerator, the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider, uh, which is there. Which people also had uh, uh, had some some issues with that. They were concerned that the same similar things would happen. Um, and I, I think really that people like to like doomsday scenarios and and like to think about uh, those things and and really the what the lab that we're going to have here is is not so much different from what we have now. It's just much more powerful, um, and so the chances of of anything even remotely like that happening is is pretty much uh, zero. <laughs> right. Um, now you guys have quite the fan base. You have a Facebook group for this. Um, and I noticed that also there's an event going on on October 15th in Holmes Hall. Um, what's going to be going on there? I think you're referring to the t-shirt pickup. Okay. All right. um, that's uh, one of the days that your um, that students are able to get their, their Frib t-shirts. Um, we actually have one going on right now in the Communication Arts and Science Building. Till 845, you can come to the lobby and, and pick up a, a Frib t-shirt. And the Lyman Briggs office in Holmes Hall is going to have those T-shirts as well, um, all day till 5 p.m. Um, up until Frib Frenzy, and we'll have them at the Rock as well. Okay. Um, now, how long does it take for the initial phase of research to become public if we do get Frib? Um, the initial phase of research. Like if we if we had it over here and people are working on it, doing different um, research projects, um, is a lot of it going to become public that we're working with? Oh yeah, it's 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 all public basically. Uh, I can I can give you an ex examples from just my uh, my work here at the lab. Uh, all the experiments that are run, uh, the 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 data from those experiments are, are analyzed and the results extracted, and people write up papers and they're published in in, in public. Uh, well, some people have to pay for them, but if you're on campus here and we have access to all these journals, you can download them, you can read the papers. So all all the data that's obtained uh, is in the papers and. And also, uh, you know, just like uh, in chemistry, people have a periodic table. Well, we have, we have a chart of the nucleides, which is much larger than the periodic table because it's, mm -hmm. it's all the elements plus all their isotopes. And uh, the information that's put on that table is, uh, is the information that we're, we're obtaining through running these experiments. So it's, it's all uh, public knowledge. Okay. Now, now, there's one other university that's competing. What was that? Name that university once again. Well, it's actually a national lab, and oh, it's okay. Argonne National Lab, and it's outside of Chicago. Okay. Now, what are they doing to compete for Fred? I'm not. I'm not really sure what they're doing. I, I haven't seen. I haven't heard much. <laughs> okay. Um, We're just really. Um, everyone here is just really jazzed about the opportunity of of this coming here, and everyone from the students as as you can tell with us being here, up to senior level administration at MSU fully support this project. Right. So do you think, um, why do you think it's so important for um, students to be able to know about this project? 
well, this is our campus and we're really the heart and soul of this university. And I, I think we, you know, we do care about what's going on on this university. This is our campus and we care about Michigan and, and our economy. And this would be a, a nuclear boost for the economy as well. And um, the lab here was a pioneer in this kind of research. It's one of the best labs for this kind of research, and we want this lab to to stay here. It was one of advancing the science is, is a vision of our former president John Hanna, and so I think that's a really unique fact as well to continue that vision for him. Oh, oh I just want I just want to make a, a comment. I mean, as a as a student here, it's the this is a very unique place. You know, I've heard it referred to as a, a jewel in Michigan, and, and even a jewel in the in the world as far as nuclear physics. You don't find places facilities like this where students can come in, not only graduate students trying to get their PhDs, but also undergraduate students and high school students and come in and actually get their hands on uh, on equipment and be a part of uh, the discoveries that are being made uh, and, and really be on the edge of cutting-edge uh, cutting science. Um, it, and I'd also like to mention that our lab is, is well regarded. I mean, you mentioned that we're number two, uh, we're ranked number two. But we also provide, we also uh, uh, produce roughly 10% of the nuclear PhDs in this country. So we, we really need a new facility to be able to continue to produce the, the people that are going to go into all these different fields in, in science, produce the new medical technologies, produce the, the, the new results, uh, and learn more about the universe through nuclear physics. Now, do you think because um, we have such high rankings in um, nuclear phys physics graduates, um, is that why they want to bring Fripp here? Um, I think it's it's a combination of, of reasons. Uh, really, we're we're the lab here needs uh, you know we, we're pushing the the edge of what we can do here. We need a new facility as a as a country, as a nation. Uh, to be able to continue uh, our nuclear science program, or else we're going to fall behind other countries such as Japan and Germany. So it's it's partially uh, our competitiveness in the in the world in, in science, not not only nuclear science, but science accelerator technologies uh, and these sorts of things. Uh, but also another part of it is is the learning. They know that if they if if you don't have a facility like this, you don't have a, a place like this on a campus, you don't get the same experience. You don't produce the same kinds of students that come out of this out of this university. All right. Well, thank you very much, guys, for coming in. Again, for those who are just tuning in, I talked with Monica Finnis, um, who is the head of the FRIB Student Advisory Committee, and Andy Rogers, who is a grad student at MSU, um, who studies um, at the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory at MSU's campus. Now, is there anywhere where people can go for more information? Yes. Um, the Facebook page is a great resource for information. You can find it by searching FRIB in Facebook, and the name of the page is Michigan's Rare Opportunity FRIB. All right. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank Again, you, Emily. Thank you. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.